chapter 1, we're going to continue our series on the theology of sexuality, and specifically today we are on the subject of what it means to be uh, male and female in terms of what does the, uh, the book of Genesis tell us about it. Uh, last week we were looking at the questions of identity primarily, and rather than pointing out all the errors, we wanted to put an emphasis on God's original design. We talked about this fact we want to... Um, to sing a, let, let the scripture sing a, a song of what God originally desired in terms of who we are and how we are made and how he has uh, fit us for relationships and for purpose in life. And so we are still in the process of doing that, um, to play that better song so that it recaptures and can remold our hearts according to what God originally designed for us. Um, Recall that God's word is our source. We looked at that the very first week. So when we think about, for instance, what does it mean from the scriptures to be a man, um, what I might have grown up thinking, um, what I might be told by other people, what might this seem right to me, um, what I might think coming out of the hurts I've experienced, um, those are not my source about what it means to be a man. God's word becomes my source. And we let that invade us and take over our hearts so it can begin to reshape what we think. The truth is our culture and our upbringing and even the um, Christian community um, has shaped our understanding of what it means to be men and women, oftentimes rather than God's word. And we want to make sure we stick with what God would have to say about it. Um, I think I've shared a little bit before part of this story. In kindergarten, I always dressed up before, not every day, but most days, I would, I mean, everybody dresses, but um, we're actually talking about being nude next week, that's the, that's the one next week, and they're naked and not ashamed. Um, but I would dress up in costumes when I was in kindergarten, so, um, and usually I'd pick, pick a certain costume and I'd wear it for a week, so I would be like, because um, they always had the show and tell, and so you could get up in front of the class, so I would dress up like Abraham Lincoln, and I would talk about Abraham Lincoln, and I dressed like Abraham Lincoln all, all week. And then I did George Washington. I had a, a suit of armor I wore, and I talked about the Crusades, and that was uncomfortable. I remember trying to take a nap time with my armor on. Um, didn't work very well. Um, I dressed up like sports heroes. Um, many, many different things. <laughs> so, um, and my mom was very committed to this, and I, I loved doing it. So there was a, one occasion, and this is late later in kindergarten, and I wanted to dress up like Peter Pan. And, um, you know, the, the, whole, the whole sing of, we can fly, we can, the whole sing, I mean, I still cry when I see that sing. And, and, and Peter Pan, to me, was like, he, Peter Pan and um, Robin Hood, Errol Flynn's version of Robin Hood, right, my two heroes, because they were flamboyant, and, and they, they carried a knife, you know, and they, they went out and did great things. And, you know, Peter Pan was like, a little rebellious, maybe, but he was also, he just, I thought he was a great hero. Anyway, so I wanted to dress up like Peter Pan. So um, my mom made these little felt slippers for me, and that little hat, and all this stuff, and she couldn't find any green, um, like, tights, like, you know, like wool tights or something. So she found green nylons. So, and I'm, I'm like kindergarten, I'm like this tall, okay? So she gets these green nylons, and so I'm pulling these nylons, and I was feeling a little uncomfortable about it. But I still thought it's Peter Pan, you know. There's nothing weird about Peter Pan. The guy is like the man's man, guy's guy. You know, this is this is awesome. Um, so I, I'm getting this this outfit on like Peter Pan, 
and my dad um, came in the room and, um, and looked, and I'm standing there in my t- green nylons, and, <laughs> and I remember he just said, he's not going to school like that. He's not going to school like that. And um, it was funny now. Um, the rest of the story is after that, he said, he's never going to act like a little girl in this home. That was, the state. that was his words to me. And I remember I heard that, because I wasn't acting like a little girl, not in my mind. Um, I was going to be Peter Pan. You know, Robin Hood wore green tights. Come on, you know? Um, but I remember I heard that, and I never dressed up again. I never, ever dressed up for school again. Um, and I discovered in one little piece, and I discovered a lot more of this later on, to I'm going to work hard, and I'm going to never do anything that would look like I'm not the man I'm supposed to be. I'm here this morning partly because of my bad upbringing, which last night I thought we should just have a sharing service. This week. I should not be here today because I am flat on my back. And, um, but no, if you're a man, you just do what you got to do, and you be there, and you make sure you finish it, that kind of thing. And so I, I grew up with this, um, this idea of what it means to be a man, and that wasn't all correct. Um, and it shapes how we do, and we are all shaped by these things. Um, and we have all sorts of ideas of what it means to be male or female, men and women. And we want to look at what God's word has to say about it. Um, our culture also misinforms us. For instance, manliness equals machoism. You know that, that uh, goofy commercial with, uh, was it doc, Dr. Pepper 10? Shows a guy with a beard and he's rowing in his canoe with a, with a bear in the back, you know? Have you guys seen that? It's pretty funny. But um, definitely, it's, it's making fun of the whole macho thing. But manliness equals machoism. Um, the, the teaching that women don't need men as an idea of what it means to be a woman or a man, that they're unnecessary. Um, the pervasiveness in our culture that um, for men to be boyish for their whole life is like value today. So not really growing up, we, there's a certain sense that if you're, if you're 35 years old and you're still like a teenager, that's kind of a cute thing with men today. And it seems like women, there's a, at least there's a picture out there that that's what women would like. And they'll, they'll take care of it, and they like that kind of person. There's a certain sense about it out there. Of, of course, that makes men look immature, and it makes women look foolish um, for buying into it. Um, see shows on TV where... Um, more often than not, the, uh, the men, the women have all the answers, which, by the way, you do, so I'm not saying you don't. So, um, and, and men are what? They're clueless, right? They're absolutely clueless and uninformed, and actually it teaches us that's what men do. Men, you just stay out of the picture, and that's not right. I'll step on some feet here, but um, that's okay, or toes or whatever, because um, entertainment's fine, so I'm not going to make any judgments about it, but shows like... Um, I want to ask who watches The Bachelor. So what's the guy? Juan Pablo, right, um, is the next Bachelor. The truth is, um, it gives us a picture of what it means to be men and women. Okay? And, and the, the frank truth is, none of us would want our sons and daughters to model what it means to be men and women after what is in the show. We just wouldn't. And yet that's pretty pervasive in terms of what it presents to our culture. Even in Christian bookstores, um, there's all sorts of books about what it means to be men or women. Um, particularly in the area of men, I think that there's more bad stuff out there than there's good stuff. And there's a lot of things that um, have lots of ideas, but are they really biblical ideas is where it comes down to. And so we want to at least take a, 
a, uh, as part of this foundational piece that we're putting in here as we move through Genesis, we start thinking about our sexuality. What does the scriptures actually say about being men and being women? So we're going to at least take some first steps into that. Is there an actual template of what it means to be a man or a woman? And what can we actually know from these first chapters? So go ahead and turn there, Genesis chapter 1. And this is going to be a little bit of a, uh, I'm just going to kind of throw the smorgasbord items at you. We're just going to move through it, and I'm going to toss these things out there, and um, we can piece them together lately, later. I haven't talked for like four days, so my mouth is not working too good this morning. So. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. First point is men, guess what? Men are created in the image of God, and women are created in the image of God. So what does it mean? I'm not altogether sure all what image of God means. We reflect him. Does it mean that... um, that I fully uh, reflect all that God is? The answer to that would be no. Um, some would say that men and, uh, when men and women come together, like in a marriage, that fully reflects it. I don't think so. Um, it reflects more. Um, I, I like the idea that each person, um, in some general senses, we all reflect God the same way. We, we can think. We're creative. Um, those communicable um, parts of God's nature, things that he can pass along to us, there's obviously things about God that we don't reflect because we're not God. We can never show those things. But there's some, I think there's some truth that we are each uniquely reflect aspects of God's nature that maybe nobody else does. And that when God brings everybody together, it begins to show a bigger picture of what the fullness of the image of God is all about, which is why community is so important, why God always worked in communities, why ch- a church community is so important, the coming together of all these different people, all made and created in the image of God, um, begins to display more of what it's all about, which is why it's so awful when certain people are excluded in the sense that they're less than something. They don't really have something to, to demonstrate. Um, but men are created in the image of God, and women are created in the image of God as well. Um, The point is, what it is to be a man or a woman is that we are equal image bearers. That's all it's saying there. Men, you're creating the image of God. Women, you are as well. And the point is, God says, we are all equal image bearers on this earth together. As such, we have value. We have worth. We have a place. Um, We've been prepared for what he has for us to do. And we find uh, there's an equality in that as well. By the way, um, the truth that every, every individual, even it's not just those who know the Lord, everybody, the whole world, we're all image bearers. Obviously, when we come to Christ, he begins to restore that and brings that back about again and, and rest, restores it. But um, our understanding that we are all image bearers um, ought to radically change the way we interact with each other. It, it should make all the difference in the world. Um, and both the world and the church in its history have, have done poorly at that in terms of 
treating some as though they're not really image bearers. And the great truth here is that as men, we're image bearers. Um, women, we're image bearers. As image bearers, we find our identity upward from God and not downward from the created order that we looked at before. So as image bearers, we find our identity upward from God and not downward from the created order. Continuing on, um, Genesis 1.27, it said he made them male and female. What does that tell us? It tells us that we're distinct from each other. That's it. We're distinct. We're, we're equal image bearers, but we're also distinct. Um, there's equality and there's distinction. We're equal, but we're not the same. Um, and praise God for that, right? It's a good thing. Um, but God uniquely, when he created the, the human race, made them male and female, and it was meant to be distinct. Um, they're not the same. I think advertisers um, in other places, one of the things that are happening today is there's a blurring of distinctions between men and women, and they're not. Um, this is not always true, but I know in some, um, s- some of the magazines, there's especially in some, uh, I think I've seen it with some uh, perfume ads, they'll have multiple uh, models on the page. They're all very young-looking, um, but you'll notice that they're men and women, but you can't really tell the difference. They, all, they make them all look about the same. Um, and there's something being taught in that, and that, that there's no distinction anymore between male and female. And the scriptures right here say God made them in his image, but what did he make them? He made them male and female. To be, we are to be distinct from each other. To be a man is different from being a woman. We share much in common, and most of the scripture does not necessarily focus on what does it mean to be a man or a woman, but scriptures tend to talk about general character things. But there's a distinction, and that is part of God's original created order. Can't get around it. Side note, just a, it's interesting, um, in Galatians, what does it say? It says, um, in Christ there's no what? There's no male and there's no female. And yet Genesis 1 here we're sticking is that he made them male and he made them female. So how do you bring those things together? Well, there's a couple different ways to look at it. Um, just you can, this would be a good discussion point for your community groups. But one is some people say in Genesis, the Galatians passage is really saying there's no more distinction. The distinctions that culture had created are no longer a part of it. And all the, the wrongful distinctions that culture had made between men and women have now ended in Christ. Um, the other way to look at it is going, there's just, in Christ we're all one, and yet we're still distinct. And figuring out how to live out that paradox with each other it's part of what it means to live well together, and we just have to figure that out. But um, you can walk through that. So number one, men and women are both created in the image of God, equal image bears. Second of all, there's a distinction between male and female, and you need to maintain the distinction um, that God himself put into the created order. Genesis 1.28, he tells them this. God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. They're told to subdue the earth and to rule over it. Both Adam and Eve were co-caretakers or stewards or rulers of the created order. They equally shared the responsibility together. Um, As men and women, we all have been called to a mutual connection to share in God's first, um, 
what is this, his first order of business of work for us. And he puts them in the garden, and they're called to um, rule over the created order. And that the calling to do so was given to both Adam and Eve together. Um, so part of what it means to be male and female is that we are both called to share together in a mutual call to serve and lead and be invested in all aspects of our world. Interesting, verse 31, after this it says it was, all looked at it and said it was very good. It was very, very good. It's God's ideal, his desire for us. That we are equal image bearers, that we are distinct as far as being male and female, that together we have been given a mandate to rule over the created order. Jumping ahead to chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 7. <clears throat> it says, then the Lord God formed man. He's kind of going a, a retelling of the story here. The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man bega- became a living being. I like that, those words. He breathed into him, and he became a living soul. Became a living soul. Um, what I want to mention there is, in terms of being men and women, male and female, is in the garden, there was not a distinction between being a living soul and being a physical person. Um, God brought that all together into one thing. Um, there's a tendency, um, even the church did this, where they would look at the physical part of us as one thing, and our soul, our spirit, as something else. So it split the two apart. So um, God didn't make us that way. Um, the, our soul and who we are and our spirit and our physical bodies are one. It's, that, that's what makes us up. That's, that's who we are. Now, that tells me a great deal about what it means to be men and women. It's, it's, even my physical body is bound up in that, and it's part of reflecting of God's um, character and his nature. Um, there's an inseparable nature of life and soul. We are whole, and our sexuality and gender do not just reside within our physical bodies, but they actually go to our very soul. As such, our sexual expressions are never, ever just about our body. It's about us as whole people. It has something to do with being male and female as well. Continuing on in chapter 2, I'm going to go back to verse 6 and then jump to verse 15. Verse 6 um, that's where I want to go. Genesis chapter 2. We'll start with verse um, 15. It says, God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden, and he put him there to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it you will surely die. So God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground he formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. By the way, you can't blame God for the names of the animals, so it was Adam's fault. And man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there is not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused um, a deep sleep, and he goes on with the creation of Eve there. 
a couple key words here. And these have to do with um, kind of what, what did God make us to do? Um, just to do part of who we are. It says here that he was put in the garden to cultivate it, um, to care for it. Um, when you cultivate something, you want it to grow. You want it to expand. Um, part of this filling the earth was, to, I think they were supposed to take what was in the garden and, and see it duplicated and spread through the world. I think that was what they were supposed to do. Um, and so he's called to cultivate it. What God had produced the garden, Adam was to reproduce it in the world. This goes back to um, part of what it means to be um, men in this particular case has to do with this, be given a work to do here. Um, he's given. Second of all, he's given the, he's given the job of naming the animals. Um, God gave, it's interesting that God gave Adam um, a place of authority. That may, sound, that may not sound very important, um, uh, but God had, had created all these animals, and then he took the right to give them their names, and he gave it over to Adam. So whatever Adam said, that's what happened. Um, he had, he had, he had a, what he did made a difference. Um, it had impact. Thirdly, it says that they're to enjoy all the fruits of that God had given to his, his place of enjoying, and they're all supposed to guard it. God said, make sure you don't eat this, because if you do, it's all going to go really bad. And so Adam was given a, a role of not just enjoying what they had, but guarding it as well. Um, so they're, Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're cultivating. They're trying to reproduce this thing so it spreads. Um, Adam's giving names to animals, uh, taking a place of authority in a sense, in terms of, of a role. Um, they're called, he's called to guard over the garden to make sure it's protected. Um, I look at that, it comes out to me that we were created, both men were created for this and women were created to make a difference. Um, what we do has purpose. Um, what we do has, we're designed to have impact, as um, Larry Crabb writes. We're just, we're made to have impact. And so right from the very beginning, God gave Adam, and then Eve comes part of that as well, that what they did made a difference. And ever since then, we've all desired to make a difference. Um, men want to make a difference. Women want to make a difference because we're created as part of who we are as men and women with a, a longing and a desire to make an impact. Continuing on through verse 2, 18, going back to that one. God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And jumping on to verse 21, God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed the flesh of that place. And he fashioned into the, a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to him. So we're created in his image, as equal image bears. Um, we're called together to serve and rule over the created order. Um, there's distinction between maleness and femaleness that goes beyond just our physical bodies because they're bound up with who we are. Um, we're called to have an impact, make a difference. It's, it's, it's wrapped up in our very being. And then lastly here... Um, we are designed for relationships. <coughs> Men and women, both designed for relationships. Adam's here. He gets all the animals. 
and he's noticing there's nobody like there's nobody for him, and he's alone. It's not good. And God says the first place He says it's not good. We all seen this before. He says it's not good for him to be alone. And so he creates the woman and brings her to the man. Um, to be a man or a woman means to be in need of others. To be a man or a woman means to be in need of other people. We were designed for relationship. It goes on here, and by the way, this next couple points are done in the context of marriage, so how this intersects with being single, I'm not really sure yet. We will get to that. But um, as he brings them together, what does he say, Eve? What's, what's the woman's role here? What does he say she needs? He says he needs a helper suitable for him. Kind of strange words. Um, suitable means his equal, <clears throat> a matching counterpart, um, a corresponding companion or a partner. That's what it means. Um, that's a suitable part. His equal a matching counterpart, a corresponding companion or a partner. The word helper is actually used in reference to God over and over again. As a matter of fact, the place it gets used most often in the Old Testament is when God sent a miraculous help to rescue the Israelites in the midst of trouble. So when they're getting blasted by some army and God sends a group of angels to win, it uses the word help. Um, that's what it is. It, it's to... Um, the word actually comes from a couple of different roots, but it means to bring aid with great strength. <clears throat> Moses' son was named, um, his name means helper, and it was to signify God's power that was shown in the, the moving of the Exodus. And so when God says Adam needs something, what does he need? And it says what he needs is someone who's his equal and his companion and his partner, but one who will bring powerful aid to the things that he's called to do. Um, and by the way, the implication of that, understand what God says about himself in that, is that without that aid, nothing happens. Um, he can't carry out the tasks. Um, it's like we were just praying. With, apart from you, what can we do? Nothing. And so this idea of a helper suitable for him is this picture of God coming in with his powerful aid to his side. And what is she supposed to aid and strengthen? Well, that's Adam's role. Um, and although it doesn't say it right here, but in conjunction with what we looked at in Ephesians, and when we look ahead to chapter 3, we discover that when they sinned, who was held responsible? Remember? Adam was held responsible. Adam, all by himself. That was it. Um, and so I think the role of the man, Adam, was to be responsible. So we looked at when we were in chapter four of, or chapter 5 of Ephesians. We talked about that, that the, the core role for the husband was to be responsible. Um, not like I'm responsible, but to take responsibility, to hold responsibility and accountability for what took place. And the key role here of Eve was to bring aid with great strength as his counterpart. Genesis 3 and the New Testament both make it clear that God held Adam and Adam alone responsible for what happened in the fall. And although they both suffer the consequences, um, God holds Adam responsible. The commandments were given to him, and he was supposed to be held responsible and accountable for what took place in the garden. Um, man's res his responsibility was to lead the partnership 
in the God-glorifying direction. If, that's, if you need a kind of a picture, maybe what that, a better way to say what the man's role was, was to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying direction. And he was going to be held responsible and accountable for that. Douglas Wilson defines biblical masculinity as this. He says, a glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility and accountability. The glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility and accountability. Now, how this all interacts with not being married and being single, we will get to that. But it's part of what the text is here about what men and women were when God first made them here in the garden for Adam and Eve together. By the way, in terms of um, those responsibilities, just a little side thing, and I think we, we've got those up here. We can reject our responsibilities, by the way. We can just leave it to somebody else. Um, and this is kind of on the side, but in marriage, this is what men often do. Just leave it, just not take the responsibility and just kind of leave it. Um, and it'll maybe just get done somewhere along the line. And um, that passive role. The second way, um, which is probably as common, is to take responsibility, but to do it on our own. So, okay, God's given me a job. I'm just going to make sure I take care of it, and I will make sure it gets done. Um, and that doesn't go very well either, by the way. I've tried both all the time. I keep trying them both all the time. Um, they don't work. The third, the third um, response is to go, yes, I accept the responsibility God's given, but I absolutely cannot do it, and they should drive us to the feet of the Savior. That's what they're designed to do. So for, for wives, this responsibility of bringing powerful aid as a companion and a partnership in moving the relationship in a God-glorifying direction, it should drive us to a Savior who says, help me to do that. And for men to be take on the responsibility and accountability for pointing it in the right direction, it should drive us to a Savior because we can't do it without that. <clears throat> All right. That was a smattering of ideas, huh? So here we go. We will get more next week. Um, next week we're going to specifically look at, um, it says they're naked and they were not ashamed. And then it talks about the fact that they were one flesh. And I think the issue of being one goes way beyond just marriage. There's something more to it than that. And we're going to be spending all our time um, about that particular issue um, next week. Um, what are the implications of that in marriage, but also singleness, and in God's kingdom work, um, and also in our expressions of sexuality as we look at what it means to be one? Um, a couple resources. Mikey, you can put those books up there. There's um, Rob Bell has a book called Sex God. Um, and I, I don't like everything Rob Bell writes, but I like a lot of it, too. Um, so, like any resource, you can agree or disagree with whatever's in there, but it's a really well done um, on the area of particularly being one, what it means, this whole issue of oneness, that it, um, our sexuality is deeply connected with this um, God's, it's, it, this whole thing that we are not just physical people or just spiritual people, but we are whole people. And how we're impacted by that. So that would be worth a while looking at. Um, Larry Crabb's book on understanding people. He deals a lot with the whole area of we were created for relationship, and we were created to make an impact. And how those things get out of shape in our life, and how they they're designed to flourish both as men and as women as well. A couple of questions um, from this morning, and I realize it's kind of a little scattering of things today, but um, it'll give you something to think about anyways. Number one. Um, first one up there, Mike, I think I've got it wrong here. What idea do you hold of what it means to be a man or a woman? What ideas 
do you hold of what it means to be a man or a woman? So while you're sitting out in the grass um, having hamburgers, you can say, hey, let's answer that question. <laughs> what, is, what is my idea of what it means to be a man or a woman? So, um, or you can do it somewhere else. Um, not necessarily right or wrong, just when you think about it, what does it mean to be a man or a woman, just what is it? Just put it out there, um, what those things are. Second of all, what aspects of that are perhaps true and what aspects of that are false um, in your thing? What perhaps is true and what is perhaps false? And what's the third one, Micah? What false messages are you most susceptible to? The world is telling us all sorts of things about what that means. So which are the ones that you tend to buy into the quickest um, that are probably not correct? And think about, um, you might even take that question a little bit further, going, why are you so susceptible to that particular one? Um, so whatever that might be. So it's, uh, um, I'm going to be the, the guy who can fix anything. Um, and thinking through, is that good or bad? And just neutral, maybe not at all. But that's my whole idea. Um, that's what I buy into. Why is that important to me? Answering those questions. So what idea do you hold of what it means to be a man or a woman? What is perhaps false or true about that? I mean, what are the false messages um, that you are most susceptible to and perhaps um, why as well? Cameron, you can, you can bring the worship team up here. Um, I realize that we're going through um, these beginning stages here slow. Um, it's, it's not because I'm afraid to get into their stuff, because I'm not. We're, we'll be there. Um, we, we've wanted to lay this foundation because so much... Even the issue that male and female are distinct, it answers a whole bunch of questions for us when we deal with some other areas right off the bat. So we want to lay a foundation because it will give us answers for the other things when we start talking about some of the details of how um, our sexuality and our brokenness can sometimes show up. And we're also still trying to paint, God paints this picture um, in these first chapters of what does it look like to be men and women? What does it look like to be image bearers? Um, and think about it. Um, if you were to take these first chapters and, and take them and, and bring them to life in our midst here, um, what would it look like that we actually treated each other um, with the kind of worth that God has, that he thinks of us, that we would treat each other that way, that we treat those outside the church that way, um, that the... Um, divisions we have with male and female that even when even in a place where we don't have much of that there's still some of that there that would be all gone um that we, there'd actually be a sense of partnership of carrying out god's work together that there would be intimacy that was unbroken by all things that we've built up inside of ourselves that don't allow each other in and portray false things about who we are as men and women and that would imagine that was all gone and that, so we have a sharing service, and our sharing is, is wide open because there's delight there, and we can receive it from each other and hear one another because those things are, um, those hindrances are gone. When we all have a sense of purpose, and we actually really know what our purpose is, and we see God carrying it out in our lives, and we can celebrate each other, that um, our need for relationship is actually met. And whether we're married or single, um, we would stand there going, I am fully met in the needs that God has given to me for relationship. It's fully met. Imagine that we'd have that. Um, 
I don't believe that that's a lost hope for us. Um, rather, it's, I think that's what God wants to restore us to. Um, so let me pray, and then we're going to worship as we um, worship our, our restorer. Father, thank you for um, the goodness of what you did, your plans and your purposes and your designs and um, We've never really experienced it because we just haven't. And um, thank you for your son and for the life that was given for us. Thank you that the door has been opened wide for us here in this group to experience the, um, I believe, the very fullness of all that you've created us to be. And so little by little, uh, step by step, Lord, may you um, open those steps before us. May you... um, Wash us over in your love that draws us, that we might be um, fully restored and experiencing with one another um, the wonder of what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we're going to sing you a song like we sometimes do. Just want to invite you to stay in that meditative place, whether you're thinking about the questions that he had up there. Um, Will you actually, Micah, not put the words up for this, but have those questions up there? We'll just sing it. And um, if you want to continue that contemplative breathing that we were doing before, just breathing in desire for him and then breathing out whatever you need to let go of, um, we're just going to sing this uh, song from the 80s for you and you might laugh when you know what it is but I bet it's a a legitimate prayer for a lot of us Wasted time Is it written in your heart Like it's written in mine Things look so bad Everywhere In this whole world What's fair We're walking blind And we try to see But we're falling short of what could be bring me a higher love bring me a higher love bring me a higher love 
higher love Words are turning And we're just hanging on Facing our fear That we're standing here alone But there's this burning And it's real to me That there is someone Who will walk it with me Things look so bad everywhere In this whole world, what's fair? We're walking blind and we try to see But we're falling short of what could be So bring me a higher Higher love Teach me a higher